Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation here on the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic uh, for, jeez, uh, is anywhere left? There's no more movies. <laughs> but I still do the job. Uh, but everybody You're calls s- me Bibs. We, we are still critics, damn it. <laughs> As we push the Sisyphusian stone up this hill. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, better known as Sisyphus. I make, make Rockmeister McCool your thing. <laughs> to, to employ a Camus reference, I like if you it. will. Um, I like it. I contribute to IGN from time to time, uh, and anybody else who will have me. Mm. And uh, I'm the, 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 the other host. You are of this podcast. I'm very grateful. To and, uh, I thought maybe you'd segue or something. I was going to give you, I was giving you some rope, and, and, and all you did uh, was hang yourself with it. And <laughs> and here we are uh, answering your letters on on you've got mail. Yeah, uh, uh, every any you want to send us in uh, your questions, uh, your critiques, your concerns. Uh, you want to know more about the industry. You want to know more about film history. You want to get recommendations. You want to recommend things to us. You want to take us to task. You want anything at all? Really, we're it doesn't have to even be movie related. Uh, you write us in letters at critically acclaimed.net. That's the email. We read your email. We respond to your email. And we don't like wasting time at the beginning because this is your podcast, not ours. Whitney? Yes. Let's talk. Let's let's chat, shall we? Yeah. Let's rap. As, as Frazier once said, I'm listening. <laughs> let's, let's chin wag. Nobody says chin wag anymore. Mm. Here's a letter from Oliver. Oh, hey, Oliver. Hello, Oliver, and this is topical to what's been going on out in the world. Okay. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> Very topical. Very topical. Um, <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic is a serious threat that goes well beyond the arts community and needs to be taken seriously by all. This is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, the virus effect on the arts community is what my question is about. Uh, with film and television productions being halted, film festivals being canceled, and Broadway theaters being shut down for at least a month, the effects in the art industry is massive. I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, public health is paramount, and the threat the virus poses needs to be taken seriously. You only need to look at the damage caused by the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s to see the damage that can be done by ignoring a health crisis. Yep. The number of artists lost in great pieces of art that never were made is immeasurable because the government of the day, day minimized it as a, quote, gay disease. Um uh, more on that, there's a really great documentary film called How to Survive a Plague, yeah. which is g- dives deep into all of the details about what was going on in the 1980s and how the government did nothing mm. to even acknowledge it um, and the damage that did. Uh, but on the other hand, it is a time of crisis uh, that – it is an, in a time of crisis that art is at its most vital mm. for it to be escape or information. Uh, the role of art is invaluable in helping people through and or creating understanding during a time of crisis such as this. Uh, also, as an independent theater artist, I'm seeing the financial damage that is being done to the arts sector by shutting the shutting down of theaters, festivals, productions, etc. Uh, while bigger companies have insurance and can afford to take a loss, the smaller independent companies can't afford to shut down, and if they do, they may never reopen. If those companies do close their doors, in the, the arts ecology will be forever damaged. My question is, is there a way of supporting art and the role it plays on both a societal level and a personal level for arts workers in this time of crisis while putting public safety first? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Thanks in advance, Oliver. Uh, thank you, Oliver. Uh, mm. To answer your first point, uh, I, I want to address this because what we're dealing with right now is kind of unprecedented in our generation, at least in America. Yeah. And um, it's going to take a lot of getting used to because 
barring some unforeseen absolute miracle, it's not going to get fixed right away. It's uh, it's yeah. Uh, a lot of businesses are being closed for a month, and mm-hmm. that's just. And now we're just stuck here with angry cats. <laughs> Silence, angry cats. Uh, the closest analogy I can remember, do you remember the 1994 Northridge earthquake? Yes. Yeah, that was just here in Los Angeles. It wasn't a global uh, thing. But uh, for a few days, you couldn't drink your water because, uh, like, plumbing and filtration systems had been damaged in the quake. A lot of highways had shut down. Buildings had fallen over. People were displaced from their homes. It was a big deal. Yeah. It was a lot of damage. Um, I was luckily out of town when it struck. I was camping with the Boy Scout troop I was a member oh, of. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was right so, there. Right so in the I, um, so I, f- I felt it like it woke us up, and then we started getting phone calls saying, are you guys okay? Yeah, we were actually out like like Arrowhead, so we were pretty far away. We had to stay out in a cabin for a couple days. Uh, it, yeah, and it was, a, it was a big, big deal. People yep. had to get their bottled water at the grocery stores, but that was like maybe a week. Yeah. Of us being out of school and then everything just sort of got back to normal and the rest of the world was always just sort of chugging along as usual. Yeah, this this is sort of bigger than anything. Oh, so yeah, because in is California we're, we're used to earthquakes. That's our natural disaster. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why everyone's like hoarding toilet paper is because we're used mm-hmm. to like that kind of scarcity. That like, oh, God, we might not have running water and stuff. So sanitary supplies are so important. But uh, my point was um, it's – really important that we think about big picture, lots of different contexts. It is also okay to say, okay, but right now let's talk about the arts community. Yeah. Because the arts community is, and whether you're talking about theater, music, film, Mm. the majority of the arts outside of maybe like video games that make our lives, you know, so much fun, uh, they're communal activities. They're, That's how they're sold. They're places where people gather. They, people yeah. have to leave the house. And people get go to movie theaters. Place, people yeah. go to concerts. People go to live theater. Uh, t- so, television less so. And, less and, so. and video games are, are notoriously solitary. But yeah. yeah um, but production of television is a group activity. Mm-hmm. So in order to actually protect people and uh, stop the spread of the virus as much as we possibly can, slow it down so that we have time uh, to take care of everybody and the hospitals don't get flooded, um, everything's taking a break. You, you're sure you've all heard about the movies that have been delayed. That sucks. Of course it sucks. Mm-hmm. It sucks for the people who made those movies, who were, de- who were trying to make money off of that. Mm-hmm. It sucks for the people who wanted to see those movies. But a pandemic sucks way more. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd rather we play it safe, and that's the important yeah. thing. Save some lives, save some lives, rather than keep theaters open so we can watch Trolls World Tour. You know, um, and, and for the record, this this directly hurts us. Like when I say yeah. that it's more important to protect people, uh, what I'm saying is my job is really not going well right now because the majority of the writing outlets for entertainment journalism or criticism, like what Whitney and I do. Their editorial calendars are almost specifically keyed into current events. And mm. current events are what's currently in theaters, what's new in the news. There's nothing new in the news, no one's making anything, and there's nothing new in theaters, and that's going to go on for months. Yeah. Which means there's mm. less to write about, which means we're not getting paid, which yeah. means it, we're not in a good place right now. This it, sucks. It, it's it's really well the problem is there actually is a lot to write about. Thanks to a lot yes, of, of a lot of like you know, all of the streaming platforms are still operating. I, I'm frustrated that you know the, the the industry has always kind of revolved around novelty rather than just sort of having retrospectives on the regular, and yes, ra- I agree. rather than leaning heavily into the retrospectives and keeping the you know the actual level of content up, they're just not giving us the work. Uh, um, which, and, luckily, and to be fair, some places are indeed focusing more on streaming, but there's 
when you're when that's all you got mm. is whatever TV we have left that was already in the can and whatever is coming to streaming, which is mm. planned out months in advance. But the that it's still way less content to write about. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I do agree with you that I do believe that we, this is a great opportunity to focus more on stuff that isn't brand new. Mm-hmm. But people's people's well, but success rates for their websites, for example, yeah. are based off of traffic, and traffic tends to focus on what's trending, and it's harder to get. I watched. I watched. I watched, watched Crawl for the first time. Mm-hmm. Trending like it's mm-hmm. hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the the content is still out there. It's still going to be interesting. But yeah, the business is hurting, and we're yeah. and we're hurting. We're not going to get the work now. Luckily, we have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we there's a in fact there's a lot of artists out there who uh, can still get your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the local theater troops and the burlesque troops that I know personally mm-hmm. are putting online like online and streaming. Uh, shows yes, like they're uh, they're recording their acts live at home, mm-hmm. and then they're going to be selling those things like on a on a, a subscription basis or on a sale basis. Um, so you can still support them without having to go out. Uh, some people are actually doing something yeah. really cool where they're actually giving like lessons, like artists are giving like art lessons yeah, yeah, yeah. online. I think Billie Eilish is doing that right now. Yeah, um, I know like I know some comic book artists mm-hmm. who are doing that as well. Mm-hmm. That's something you can do. Yeah, you um, can pay them for that. Fact, Mo Willems, uh, like mm-hmm. he's the biggest name in children's literature right now. Oh, okay. He did. Uh, the pigeon books. You surely have seen the pigeon books no. and the elephant and piggy books. No. books. I have a child, so I'm really, really familiar with Mo my, Willems. My fingers but, um, are way off the pulse <laughs> of that particular the literary book community. World, yeah. yeah, but um, and Karina Longworth, uh, a critic I greatly admire, yeah. had the wonderful uh, suggestion to uh, buying gift cards to all of the local independent theaters in your neighborhood. Yeah, if you want to support them and they're not open, you can still give them money and buy gift cards uh, in the amount of whatever you would be spending there ordinarily. Yeah, like however often you go there, even if you only go there once a month, use that ticket money. And just hand it over to them in a, the form of a, a gift card or a gift certificate. Yeah. They'll sell it to you. Yeah, and, and then that's a way to keep them. Fi- and then when, when you'll, you get you'll back. be able to exchange that for the actual service. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not um, just throwing money away. You're getting it back eventually. eventually. It's an investment. Yeah. In yeah. keeping that business open. Um, so yeah. Uh, but the problem is f- that find the artists, support them, give them money directly. Yeah. These are kind of the best ways you can go about doing that. Problem. The, the problem though is that I think there are definitely ways we can keep artists supported. Mm-hmm. There are downsides. Um, there's going to be, I mean, a significant number of people are going to be facing an economic crunch mm-hmm. because businesses are closing down or dramatically minimizing their hours or uh, what kind of operations that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, some businesses are being shut down altogether, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you pointed out in your email, there are some places where if this goes on long enough, they might not come back. Yeah. There might be yeah. establishments or uh, even industries. I mean, like the movie theater industry was hanging by a thread for a long time. Anyway, movie theater industries long ago now doubled down on here's what's going to save movie theaters. Here's going to keep them alive. Events. Yeah. That's what we're going to resort to. It doesn't matter if we have a bunch well, of different. That was the theaters. That was the studios well, as well. But, but yeah. it was the whole system. My point. Yeah. But, but the studios, regardless, the theaters were relying on the business model of, okay, occasionally a small movie will break out and we'll make money. But for the most part, we're going to make the majority of our money on every couple of weeks a major event film comes out and the theaters get packed with people. Mm-hmm. Now that's not a thing. 
even before the theaters shut down, at least most, I know some are still open, but like here in LA, the theaters are completely shut down right now. But just before that, they were going to uh, minimize capacity so that every no theater could be more than 50% full. That was the original plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way people could keep their distance from each other. Um, but still see movies. In it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still a risk, but people could make that conscious risk for themselves. Mm. And I suspect at some point, maybe things will die down enough that we can go back to that. But even so, that's really not going to help the movie theater industry too much. We're starting to see studios releasing. Initially, they're releasing movies that have only been out for like a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like the, the, Invisible the Invisible Man, Man is, is going to be on streaming. Uh, um, as, the, as Friday, the Friday after we record this, yeah, from what I understand uh, that uh, that new Vin Diesel movie Bloodshot is going to be on uh, streaming, okay. even though it was only op- out for a week. That makes sense. You know, you, it's no sense in like pulling it from theaters, remarketing it, and releasing later. Mm-hmm. The damage has kind of already been done. You yeah, can, I, I that's think, just a band aid on the economic stuff. But like Disney could probably do that with like Onward. They could re-release that uh, because they have maybe. The, the money and the, yeah. the clout to do that. I, sort I suspect of thing. they might want to if like if if the situation clears up enough by the end of the year, Disney mm-hmm. might want to do that so they for like Oscar consideration for Onward. Um, but what we're really going to see is going to be interesting is how I believe it's Universal has the trolls animated yeah, series yeah. they're going to be releasing the trolls animated movie day and date in whatever theaters are, are open uh and online on vod and i believe the the business model is going to be 20 dollars per rental you can like mm. watch the movie for 48 hours and it's a 20 dollar mm. rental now the thing is the unless people see that movie like everyone sees that movie universal is not going to make as much money as they would if that had opened at the yeah, end they're just yeah. not however if for families, that's actually a good bargain because otherwise you're going to spend like ten, fifteen dollars a ticket per person. Yeah. So if you have a family of three or four, you're saving a massive amount of money. And a lot of people have already sort of hunkered down and are preparing to have sort of home entertainment for over the course of the next month. So. Sure. A, a new film coming into their homes could be a big deal, and it it's into certainly a, big a novel. Movie night. Yeah, yeah. Um, the question that a lot of, that's on a lot of people's minds is, what will the industry be if this lasts so long mm. that other film studios follow suit and start doing more day and date movies, and people get used to that and want that? And that's something that has been a risk. That's something that movie theaters have been trying to avoid mm-hmm. for a long time is these major titles bypassing theaters altogether. Yeah. They were okay with the occasional Irishman like slipping through, but if Disney decided to just put Black Widow on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. A, they wouldn't make the money back to spend too much on it, but it would drive up subscriptions, and people yeah. would see it, mm-hmm. and that would diminish... The cash, the the whatever, the the popular cachet of seeing this in a theater, it, it would feel like less of an event. Of an event. Exactly. Yeah. So these are things that we might have to deal with. We might have to deal with genuine change to the way things operate, and I think it's too early to fit, to predict exactly mm-hmm. how it's all going to turn out. But it is for those of us who care, and I, I suspect if you're listening to this podcast, you do. Um, we're going to stay vigilant. We're going to look at how different studios, different art forms uh, are reacting to this. I think on an individual level, a lot of artists are going to be able to keep going and stay active. Hopefully, there will be enough money to go around to pay them. Mm. Um, but on an in, on sort of a, a level of actual businesses, we're in a wait-and-see mode. 
Yeah. We, yeah, we um, simply are. I wish I had really good news, but it's just we're waiting well, yeah, we, and we're we, hoping for the best. We really we really don't know. We really don't know. I'm thinking a lot about something uh, Spielberg said a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He was asked about the future of movies. Where are they going? Because the, he was asked right when streaming was like booming for the first time and yeah. theaters were taking a big hit. And uh, he felt, and I think correctly, that uh, ticket prices would become kind of tiered. Yeah. Theaters would consider to would continue to close and the quote prestige pictures and he was taught this was about the time Lincoln was in theaters. A uh, film like Lincoln, he said, was going to be sort of relegated off to the side to these tiny little art theaters that there was still there was still always going to be a few little tiny art theaters that have you know films with niche appeal. Think of your local stage, like your local theater. Mm-hmm. Where actors are gathering, yeah, not, not, sort of not, like, not your big Broadway theaters, yeah, like, your local theaters, mm-hmm. like seating of maybe two hundred people. Yeah, that's where Lincoln is going to be showing. Yeah, Steven, doesn't matter if Steven Spielberg made it. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, think of something like Avengers Endgame, and think of something that would make it seem like a little rinky-dink nothing movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a, a five hundred million dollar film. Whatever, whatever James for, yeah. Cameron wants Avatar uh, two. Exactly, to be. Yeah. It's, it's like four and a half hours long, and it's going to be this gigantic event, and they're going to open it in these supraplexes that mm-hmm. seat thousands of people, and Lincoln will fetch ten dollars a ticket. Supra Avengers will fetch like $150 a ticket. He says uh, movies are headed the way of Broadway. And I feel like this crisis is sort of accelerating that model. Because when things reopen, the only theaters that are really going to be able to survive, it's Taco Bell is the only restaurant to have survived the franchise wars. Um, (laughs) It's a Demolition Man reference. Demolition Man reference. Uh, Yeah, yeah, the big, big, big companies, you know, your Universals, your Warner Brothers, your your Disneys, are the only ones that are going to have the money and the clout and the content to continue to make these big pictures. I think we're seeing... Sorry, go ahead. And yeah, and and like other little more modest... uh, Studios like you know your your neon your a twenty four your Blumhouse, they're the ones who are going to continue to put out like really interesting content, but it's going to be really far like even further off to the side. Mm, it's going to this... get less attention, except for people like us, except for I, critics who are trying to find that. I think it's always. Champion I don't it. think it's just critics. I think there's always mm. going to be a market for it. I think if you look at the success of something like Parasite, mm. there is still a market. There's still money, real money, yeah. to be made with that. But and I and again, Spielberg posed that business model a while ago. I honestly don't see that particular thing happening, but mm. I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like it. You mentioned something uh, that I want to talk about, which is sort of the acceleration mm. of, um, you know, we saw like the future of theaters is going to be in flux and maybe where it is in 10 years isn't going to be where it is now. And mm. maybe this event that we're all living through is going to accelerate that and make that happen a lot faster. That could happen across the board, though. Yeah. Like that, we're seeing like a lot of industries that were just like, no, it's impossible to work from home. Actually, it's incredibly possible to work from mm-hmm. home. Um, we're seeing like, okay, well, now that like people are working from home and people aren't commuting as much, air is getting cleaner. There's videos of like <laughs> the canals in Venice and you could see the whole like, the fish <laughs> in the water now. And it's just, just taking yep. a break from that. Like mm-hmm. It's like we might end see like a s- dramatic paradigm shift. And how society works if this goes on long enough. If mm. this ended next week, we'd all like have a big party and go, yay, back to normal. Mm. But if it goes on long enough, we might get used to the way things are. We might have to adapt to the way things are. And we might start seeing you know, things in the system that need to be changed. Because once we're in crisis mode, American healthcare doesn't work too well, does it? Maybe uh. we should do something about that. So it's going to be 
it's going to be an interesting time. Mm, yeah. It's going to be a scary time. It's going to be a strange time. It's going to be an off-putting time. There's good that can come from it. It can bring mm. us together. It can bring us together with our families. We have to slow down, spend more time with our families. Um, we might appreciate talking to our friends more. A lot of people have started, I know, have started calling each other more than texting each other because it's that kind of human contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start to treasure that kind of contact. Letter so, writing will, will, will increase. Maybe. Yeah, like, yeah. that might actually be a good idea. We, You know, society has accelerated so quickly over the last 20 years. Maybe this is an opportunity to slow down mm-hmm. and take stock and maybe ask ourselves, yeah, some, which of these things that accelerated we really value and treasure. I think the level of communication that we have with the internet is great. But maybe we've lost some close connection at home that maybe we can reevaluate and improve on. Yeah. That's me being a cockeyed optimist. Maybe, and and to, to put the, the, the bitter spin on that, because that's what I do, of course. maybe the things we hate will go away. <laughs> that's not bitter, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, the way you hate yeah, it, I yeah, suppose. Maybe the things we loathe, some of the like the, the well, more unhealthy like you say, like communication is up, but alienation is as well. So maybe mm. this is going to cause people to actually connect in a more meaningful way using the internet it would, the way it was intended they said it was intended to be well, used twenty five years ago. Well, how about this? Something we talk about all the time as film critics mm-hmm. um, is Whitney and I find it very, very frustrating that the majority of the entertainment writing is based on anticipation. Yeah, like, that's what it is. It's about looking forward to something. It's about speculating about what the next Star Wars is, the next Marvel movie is, the next whatever. If it was this, then it means this. And if yeah, it's like that. But the movie's not even out yet. Yeah, and frankly, once the movie is out, ninety percent of that stuff we wrote becomes completely dispensable and ir- mm. irrelevant. So it's, it's about you said you know it's about trending. It's about yeah. chasing the trends. Yeah. It's a business model. I actually don't like that business model, but it is a business model. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating to us uh, who want to get sort of a a broader, healthier cross-section of the entertainment industry. Yeah, we want to talk about past, present, and future. Mm. Future is interesting to write about. It can't be the majority of what we write about. So this could be an opportunity, and it's going to hit some websites hard to... Give us to let us like reevaluate the way that we talk about entertainment. You know, one of the first things everyone did once people started uh, self quarantining uh, or, or self isolating was um, uh, here are all the recommendations for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Now what? You just made a big list. That's great. That's great. People are going to recommend those things. We need to talk about those movies. Mm. And what's one, one of the reasons why we wanted to do uh, on Critically Acclaimed or other podcast a new segment that's the uh, Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Where we watch an older movie, but we don't just watch it. We're going to really talk about it. Yeah, kind of del- delve in, let us let you know what what it is. Yeah, uh, and we're choosing films that we haven't seen. At least one so of us hasn't. Well, seen. at least one of us hasn't seen. So we're going to. It's yeah. going to at least partially also be a journey of discovery. Yeah. So like, so in case you you missed the last episode of Critically Acclaimed because you weren't watching movies, uh, we're all watching this week. Uh, Guess who's coming to dinner? It's on Netflix. Uh, it's in their classics section, which is very paltry. So their, their pickings were slim. But... Their classics section has like twenty films. <laughs> in it. It's embarrassing. Uh, but but neither Whitney or I have actually seen that one, even though it's very mm. famous and won Academy Awards. Uh, so we're all going to watch that, and Whitney and I are going to review it. Mm. And if you want to uh, chime in with your thoughts, by all means, tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So. Uh, I hope that answers your question. There's no great answer to your question yet because we just don't know where this is going right yeah. now. And, but but we'll, I do but think we'll it's be, too we'll, soon to get yeah. to get to despair. 
I think it's too soon to despair. It's too, too soon to despair, and, you know, we are, you know, among those struggling artists, and we're yeah. going to keep plugging away. We're going to keep giving what you else all are we going to yeah, do? We're going to give you all the content we can. You're home. We're, we're home as well. Yeah. So we're going to try to give you what we can, and we hope that uh, we can sort of keep the conversation alive yeah. during this time, because I think that's the most important thing. Uh, art uh, brings us together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from B. Peterson. Hello, B. Peterson. We talked to, um, to B. Peterson a lot on Twitter. Um, yeah. Um, Dear Cinnamon and the Fiendish Dr. Zoltan. I'm so glad you put that into the universe. <laughs> uh, very briefly, the Fiendish Dr. Zoltan's Ghastly Crypt of Unspeakable Horrors was a show <laughs> I pitched uh, years ago to, to Nerdist. And it was going to be like a horror host type show where we were Like a video just, show. Yeah, like, like a pre-recorded segments uh, introducing horror films. And I came up with this elaborate mythology of like ancillary characters and I would play the fiendish Dr. Zoltan. And he wanted me to be a shirtless manservant cinnamon yeah, based yeah, off of Tor Johnson. You're going to be wearing a leather vest. And, oh, uh, yeah. well. <laughs> and yeah, you're going to be the, the the oafish manservant cinnamon and I had like undead cheerleaders. Is and, that what you think of me? Is that where we're at? No, I just thought that would be a fun role for you to play. I thought you would have fun playing Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. They, they, they roundly rejected my idea. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Hmm. It was Cinnamon. You think it was just Cinnamon? I think it was just Cinnamon. I think if, if we had if we had found yeah. me something to... You wrote me a, a role with no dialogue. <laughs> well, there were other characters that had dialogue. Oh, I'm so glad yeah. there were other characters with oh, dialogue. God. Some of my burlesque friends said yes, they'd love to play no, undead cheerleaders. I, and I, yeah, you know, I wanted the show to get off the air. I just wanted mm-hmm. dialogue. I, I was, I was, I was very proud because uh, one of the characters was named Grave Robin, and I thought that was I was very clever oh, in cute. that moment because grave, I, grave robbing. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, never mind. We're moving on. Moving on. Uh, Before my question, some context, I have a list of films I call my Essential 20, Mm. which are the 20 films I would consider the most important slash best slash favorite films for me personally. The list, of course, is always in flux, though there will always be some – some will always have a place on it. There will be Blood, 12 Anger Men, and Before Sunset, for example. Now for my question. How do you get a film to immediately cement itself in my Essential 20 uh, for perhaps forever? The answer is, be the film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, When they started putting out ads, like when uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire opened wide on Valentine's Day, the Mm. ads were saying, uncontested, the best romance ever written. And all the critics were like, yeah, all right. Yeah, Yeah, we're not going to fight that too hard. might be competition, I mean, but can, it's, it's, it's yeah, we, we're not going to fight. We could argue, but I'll, I'll let you have this one. Yeah, I'll I'll really I don't have a great yeah. counter argument, so yeah. it's fine. Now I know that a film's effect can wear off after a while, and granted that may still happen. But in the two days since seeing the film, I don't believe a single conscious thirty-minute period has elapsed without me thinking of it. <laughs> this film is the very definition of beautiful. When I watched Avengers: Endgame for the first time, the port the portals scene happened. And I witnessed the culmination of an entire franchise before my eyes. I got pins and needles sensation throughout my entire body to the point of where my teeth were chattering. It was difficult to breathe, and I was worried about my health. After some research, the closest thing I could find, uh, I could find to explain this was it was a physical expression of pure euphoria. Oh, yeah. Watching Avengers Endgame. That Endgame, can happen. Endgame is, uh, is a good, not great film in my opinion, but I cannot deny that it got that reaction out of me. Mm-hmm. The ending of Portrait of a Lady on Fire elicited the same involuntary reaction for me for a second time, but this time it only took two hours as opposed to two dozen films to earn it. Well done, Celine Chiama. Uh, 
Who directed Porter really? Yeah, um, uh, um, my word, the more I think about it, the film may be just be flawless. <laughs> it's fitting that this was, this was the final film I managed to see in theaters before they, my, uh, the, my city shut them all down. I have an actual question now. William mm. Whitney, have either of you ever had this specific physical reaction to a film before? If so, to what? If not... What would you say has been your strongest visceral reactions to a film in any way? Thank you. See you on the next one. B. Peterson. Um, okay. First off, yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire just slaps. Is on they, fire. It's, it's, it's fucking awesome. It's, it's going straight it's, to Criterion. And uh, it should. Yeah, they just well announced should, that yeah. today, that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is going to go on Criterion. Uh, it's going to get full Criterion release, I think, in June. Mm-hmm. If you missed it, get that disc. You're going to love that. Mm. I firmly believe that when all is said and done, and you know, because last year was a really great year for cinema, Portrait Lady on the fi- of uh, Lady on Fire is going to be the one we look at and go, yeah, that was important, and it's absurd it didn't get any Oscar nominations. Yeah. Like it's just like not even not not even what. Well, France didn't submit it for a foreign language picture, and, and the country has to. They, they submitted Les Miserables instead, and it's that a, got a nomination. Uh, it's so, a good movie. It's nowhere near as good as Portugal. No, Fire. no, no. Yeah. Um, but, like, yeah. seriously, they should have pushed that thing way harder. It's ridiculous. But It, it was my personal number one. I think um, it, was my, it was in my top three, mm-hmm. um, but it's so fucking good. So <laughs> uh, I, I, will say, I will say that you're 100% right about that. Um I'm actually always interested in terms of, um, because we watch a ton of movies, mm. and there's a lot of movies that we like. There's oh, yeah. a lot of movies we don't like. Sometimes a movie that we like does fade over time, just it doesn't stick in your memory. Uh-huh. Like, it's good, and if anyone brought it up, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a good one, you should watch that. But it doesn't. you don't reference it, you don't quote it, you don't think about it, you don't, mm. like, when something happens in your daily life, you don't say to yourself, oh yeah, this is just like... I don't know, Super 8. Like, you never... Like, Super 8's fine. Super 8. It's like, it's a perfectly yeah. decent movie, but when have you ever thought to yourself, ah, Super 8, it really informed my life experience. Like, it's just fine. Remember Super 8? You mean, do I remember the film that remembered other films? <laughs> that, yeah. Anyway, but that's my point. Mm. I'm always interested in, like, what makes, like, an instant classic. Because every mm. few years, we do get one. It's really not... Well, you know, not every year, but every once in a while. There's a... a Usually at least one film every year that just sort of crashes into my brain mm. and just hits every neuron on the way through. And uh, the year before last, it was Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. I was just exhilarated throughout that entire movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Portrait of Lady on Fire was another. There were a lot of really good ones last year. Um, We've like, had, a, it's, honestly, it's been a great few last few uh, years of cinema. How this year, before mm. everything shut down, we already had several great movies. Yeah, like, uh, genuinely capital G, great movies. It was Emma, it was Invisible Man. Um, a lot of people really love Bird, uh, Birds of Prey. I, I love Birds of Prey, you love First Cow. Fortunately, I'm going to re-release Cal, that later yeah. this year. I have I got a chance to see it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like that sort of visceral reaction, I think that's something that might be hard to quantify. Maybe you have mm-hmm. to like go back and like ask yourself later why was my body vibrating uh-huh. when I watched I don't know Gravity. Okay. Gravity is a movie. I know I like it way more than you. Mm. Gravity is a movie that when I saw Gravity, um, I knew I saw something really that was going to be really important to me. Mm. Because on top of being just visually just a whirlwind, just mm. absolutely impeccably crafted in terms of visual effects, in terms of how they staged uh, suspense sequences, the sense mm. of scale. Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, all of that uh, dazzling visual effects wonderment was in service of a story about overcoming despair. Because mm. all of that... You know, all of those action sequences, all of that craziness was basically just 
someone who has literally no reason to go on except to keep living Mm -hmm. and why that is important and heroic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I have struggled with. I've dealt with despair. I've dealt with depression. I've Mm -hmm. dealt with anxiety. And um, to see something so personal to me anyway uh, become so profound but also so entertaining and accessible and to know that like someone else feels the way I do and has like a message of positivity for me and anyone else in my situation mm-hmm. that can be enjoyed yeah not just like a therapy session but like enjoyed that gave me chills so that was a really important one to me what about you what's a recent movie for you that um, did that and how did it do well uh, Roger Ebert was very interested in the very phenomenon you're talking about, getting a physical reaction. Uh, a lot of people would like to write into Roger Ebert and ask him what what separates a three-and-a-half-star film from a four-star film when mm. you're giving her stars. First of all, he hated stars. Most critics hate those kinds of scales. They're anyway. pretty arbitrary. Um, yeah. It's basically but, just we put it, give a star mm-hmm. system. It's like, should you see it? Yeah, I get three and a half. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> is it perfect? No, okay, three and a half. That's not a four. It's, so, it's, is it it's, perfect? Four. Okay, four. Yeah, it's great. The, be- the best fun. possible. Not recommend. Two and a half stars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Leonard Moulton is currently selling shirts that just have two and a half stars on them. I think that's really great. It's actually pretty uh, good. I get that shirt. Um, but uh, he, he, because he's you know interested in the way you know our emotions react to art, because he's a critic, uh, he wanted to understand what that that said, what the difference really was, and he said, well, the, the difference is my spine will tingle. I get mm. that spine tingling sensation. So it's, actually, so the only the only perfect movie is The Tingler. There you go. <laughs> but scream. Scream for your lives. <laughs> the Tingler, if Four you've never stars. seen it, there was a gimmick where um, <laughs> the, there were buzzers built into different seats in the theater. And so the little monster at some point in the movie like, escaped Break, into breaks the into, theater. into a movie theater in the course of the movie. And then the film breaks and you see the shadow of the creature. The creature is ridiculous looking, by the way. It's this little like rubbery crab worm puppet. Yeah, it looks, like, supposed- it looks like a big dumb millipede. And, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's based on a really dumb conceit, too, that when you feel extreme fear... An animal appears inside your body along your spine, and that's the thing that causes your spine to tingle. Yeah. And the and when you scream to release that tension, it dies. It goes away. I know. It's absolutely and, ludicrous. And, and, Great and, movie. And Vincent Price finds somebody who can't scream and removes the creature from her body, and it goes and runs amok in a movie theater. Yeah. It's one of the best movies ever made. Whitney has made this literal I, case. I love this movie. <laughs> He's so not much. wrong. He loves it more than I do, but he is not wrong. It, it is it is cinema in a way that we don't get purity in <laughs> cinema any longer. I'll just say that much. But anyway, uh, the tingler aside, uh, he wanted to sort of say that the see what that that emotion was. What is it that causes your spine to tingle? What yeah. gives you that visceral reaction? And he went to sort of like psychologists and people who have names for emotions and you know people who study this sort of thing. And uh, he discovered uh, later in his life uh, the notion of elevation as an emotion not like an not like enlightenment not like some sort of psychological breakthrough yeah. just a feeling an emotion you have that was called elevation you are being sort of lifted up and uh, that's something he started writing about very extensively in his his later reviews mm. uh, and yeah so that so he figured out that you know there was a direct corollary between this feeling he was feeling elevation he called it um and yeah, uh, B. Peterson, you're calling it euphoria, just sort of like a physical reaction to mm-hmm. euphoria. Um, it's I get really sort of thrilled and exhilarated when something just compl- something takes me completely off guard mm. when it's something I'm I'm not expecting. I'm watching something like Avengers Endgame, and it's 
giving me all of these kind of expected imagery images. It's giving me them very well, but I'm not really going to be able to feel that because I grew up reading comics. And what I, what I essentially have come to the conclusion is that that entire series was uh, reverse engineered from those promotional posters you'd see in comic book shops of all of a company's heroes together, like flying in kind the of. same direction. It's I, like, well, can we make a movie that leads to something like that? And, I feel like um, to some extent, I think there's some surprises in that movie, but I feel like for the most part, that movie is a great example of giving the audience exactly what they want. Yeah. There's yeah, nothing wrong well, with that. For sure. That's very satisfying. What Whitney's talking about, and I don't even 100% agree, is what, getting that thing you didn't know you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Getting that thing that all of a sudden is brand spanking new. For me, it's more about the profundity of experience, where mm. a movie presents something to me that I didn't think I would get to feel like I lived through. Okay. And I got that from Gravity. Yeah, I got yeah. that from uh, Princess Mononoke, where mm. I had this wonderful sense of absolute transportation. I'd never seen mm. a Hayao Miyazaki movie before. Um, and I, I think there, he's done even better films, but I don't think I'll ever get that moment of just absolute elevation I mm. got from watching Princess Mononoke for the first time and feeling yeah, like, yeah. oh my god, this is what fantasy should be. I feel like I'm mm. part of a world that I want to be a part of. I I, I tend to get those kinds of like really visceral reactions from some pretty dark films. Mm. When I'm watching something like Lost Highway, for yeah. instance, something that is tapping into the kinds of nightmares I have. Yeah. That's the thing I'm really going to recoil from. Uh, and that's the thing that's going to get sort of a really visceral reaction when I see uh, a, a really, <laughs> maybe this just says a lot about me psychologically, but you know, like a really tragic death, a really mm. uh, explicit depiction of despair, what uh, was a, a really, Something that's just really disgusting will do that, but you know, Human Centipede three got a physical reaction out of me, but I just wanted to wash that's, after that movie. That's kind of how I felt after watching like that opening highway massacre in Final Destination two, where you're just like, oh my god, I never knew a massacre could be so exhilarating. <laughs> uh, what, do you remember what your first hmm. sense of elevation was? Um, do you remember the first movie that that at least that you can remember that did mm. that to you? Because I can. Uh, well, I I can, and it's kind of an embarrassing example, and I've, I've brought this up before. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you hear from, like, critics and from filmmakers, and they talk about, oh, the, the thing that brought me into movies, the thing that really got me. And they always choose something that's universally beloved, that people sure. can get behind. It's like, oh, I was, I was watching Ben-Hur, and I was impressed by its scope. Or I was watching, uh, you know, Citizen Kane, and I really got behind sort of all of its filmmaking, all right. of its psychological study. I something really broke in my brain when I saw John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, I think that's a great example. Which, that's a classic. Well, now it is, but you know, oh. when I was when I, I saw it when I was a teenager, and this it was like this was, it, was of, it derided when it came out? I remember being treated I mean, it was, okay. It was released in January. Nobody really thought anything of it. A lot of people at the time said, oh, "This is not Carpenter working at his you know full bore." We've, we good Carpenter is now behind him, and bad Carpenter is nothing ahead. But actually, uh, that was probably like the last great. Well, and Carpenter, yeah, well, now yeah. people are saying it's the last great Carpenter. But at the time, yeah, just nobody saw it. I saw it like three times in theaters. I brought my dad. He was very tolerant. Um, yeah. But it was something that introduced something that I never knew I could find in movies, and that was uh, a, a, like a horrend horrendous, like a good horror movie with a, like a lot of weird imagery and good scares mixed with this kind of off-putting existentialist nightmare. Mm. Uh, it's all about sort of well, it's how, madness. It's, 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 it's about, well, it's, like it's about madness insanity. and how. how 
cosmic insanity can happen just when your perspective has changed. You read a book and all of a sudden the monsters can kind of get into your brain. Yeah. And that scared the hell out of me. Well, that's, that was your basically – had you read Lovecraft before? Was that your introduction to like that kind of idea? I had thumbed through Lovecraft, but I was like a, not so sophisticated that I was getting into the philosophy of his work. I was just sort of by sort of the visceral scares of it. And this was the first time I realized that a, a, an idea, and I was only 16 at the time, so an idea that profound, mm. <laughs> even though it's not, it's not terribly profound, but at the time it felt like it. And so that was the one that kind of cracked it open to me. And that's, I think that's what's bringing me back to the dark, the, mm. you know, the, the horror, the despair, the nightmares, because that's, I think, is where a lot of truth can be found. And when, yeah. I see, when I glimpse that truth through the dark veil, yeah. that's when I get that reaction. Uh, for me, there were two when I was very young. I mm. think it was like two or three Mm. Uh, at the time, but I remember it very distinctly. I remember <laughs> my mom took me to see Amadeus. Yeah, you've talked and about I was like, this I've talked about, But it was a life-changing experience, and mm. I loved it so much. But the thing that made me feel like I was in another world was just the specificity and the grandeur of the opera and the costumes and the idea mm. of telling a story through opera, which was pretty alien to me at the time. Um, was just I felt completely immersed in a world unlike anything I had ever seen and I still think mm. that movie does that better than most other movies the other movie and this is the one that hits that darkness which I saw like right afterwards they had a re-release in theaters mm. was Pinocchio 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 it was Monstro wasn't it Monstro scares the shit out of me to this day <laughs> to this day well, and, 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 and you're not alone there A lot of, Monstro scared a lot of kids when I watch Pinocchio at home mm-hmm. I still get chills when we do the monstro scene, because mm-hmm. he's like this mountain in the background, and then you see like a little bubbles, and you realize that oh shit, that mountain is alive. <laughs> and then they're walking past monstro, and then the eyeball like turns and looks at them, and he's like the eyeball's pissed. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like that's not good. Nothing should be that size. It's scary at home. I saw it for the first time in a theater, and I saw this at the Pacific Theater. In Pasadena, which is sadly no longer there. How, but for a you, long, you were like three. You, even, you remember that? I do very right. distinctly. It's one of my first memories. Um, but uh, I, re- I was at the Pacific Theater, which is a theater I spent a lot of time at, and that theater was huge. It was probably mm. not the not I. It wasn't IMAX or anything like that, but it was like the biggest theater in town at the time, like the biggest individual screen mm. you could get. And Monstro was fucking life size. Like, Monstro was Monstro-sized. When you put Pinocchio on a screen that big, the sense of scale you get from Monstro is ungodly. Like, you look at it, and it's like, I'm three, and I'm thinking to myself, there are giant things in the world that want to destroy us. Scared the shit out of me. But I had that visceral sense, even though it was, in some respects, a negative feeling, because I was scared. The movie had that power. Yeah, yeah. And I respected that power. To this day, every time I'm at Disneyland, I walk past Monstro and I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> I got talked into going on the ride once and I was a little disappointed at how just kind of innocent it was. In the, it's, 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 just, it's stationary. It's just that you, you float out. Of, you don't even float into its mouth. Don't You float out of its mouth, don't you? No, you float into at it. Disneyland? I think you float into it. Uh, Whatever. It's, it's been a long time. But it's right. just basically, look at all these nice little models. I'm like... Okay, yeah, Monstro doesn't have this inside of a Monstro's Monstro's pretty messed up, actually. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, so yeah, t- t- but to address your uh, your other concern, B. Peterson, uh, the can a film just make it directly onto your best of list? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, yeah, if it, it hits you at the right time, hits yeah. you at the right moment. You know, 
Uh, and yes, you know, wait three years and it might fall off immediately, but there's and sometimes nothing movies, embarrassing about putting it on your list right away. And sometimes movies that you just merely liked three years go by and you realize you think about it all the time and it's on your list now. Yeah. yeah. You know, happens. Uh, that happens with most Malick films. Like, oh, that's really, really good. I'm still thinking of this. Four yeah. years later, I'm still thinking. I still think of To the Wonder. It's oh, really good. Uh, yeah. To the Wonder is underrated. Yeah. To the Wonder is very underrated. Uh, here's a letter from Francisco. Hello, Francisco. Hi. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Hope you're doing well. I just completed a semester abroad in Amsterdam. Wow. Oh, nice. I'm Portuguese. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. They had a great film museum there, which I went to immediately after I discovered they had an Andrei Tarkovsky ex- exhibition going on. Ooh. I had heard this was a great legendary filmmaker, but knew very little of him and his body of work. Since then, I have now watched several of his films, such as Yvonne's Childhood, Nostalgia, and Mirror, my favorite. I have yet to watch some of his other classics, such as Stalker or, Sol- or Solaris, but I'm looking forward to doing so. So my question is a simple one. What are your thoughts of... Uh, on his extremely poetic style and overall filmography. Also, if you have one, which is one of his films, which one of his films is your favorite and why? Thank you for taking my question. You guys are my favorite people to listen to talk, to talk movies. Keep being awesome. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to confess right now. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen like one or two Tarkovsky films. He's okay. actually a big blind spot for me. Uh, I've seen Nostalgia. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've seen one other, but it wasn't one of the big ones like Solaris or Mirror or Stalker. Right. So uh, I, mm-hmm. I yield the floor to Whitney. Um, you've seen Yvonne's Childhood. That's a great film. Just plain, straight up great. Um, it's also maybe one of his... Uh, that one and Andre Rublev are probably his most accessible. That's the other one I saw. Andre Rublev? Yeah, okay. that's, that one's good. Uh, those are probably his most accessible, and weirdly, those aren't the ones he's best known for. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's only when he got sort of like really, really out there that people kind of started taking note of, of his style. And I think Solaris is his best known film. In fact, mm. it's been remade. Um, Remake's pretty good. Remake's okay. Yeah. I have no problems with the remake. It's fine. Uh it's it, it seems slow moving and profound and weird and kind of up its own butt. But then you see the original, and you're like, oh no, that was really accessible. Well, you read the book; it's all on the back. I was a fan of the book. I actually haven't oh, seen okay. uh, Tarkovsky's version. The books, it's yeah. all there. Um, it's all on the page. It's all very high minded. Solaris and Stalker are science fiction movies. Uh, Stalker was my introduction to Tarkovsky, so I was actually put off right away because I don't like Stalker. Mm. Uh, it is dull as toast, and I've re- I've revisited it, and it it's still dull and hard to get through. Um, it's about some. It's about these guys entering, like, essentially the negative zone, and they have to sort of t- stalk through this dangerous territory, testing for landmines, and when they get to the center, it's like they essentially get a wish. Mm. And uh, So it's Minesweeper the movie. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> the problem is, the, the negative zone is... It, it looks like Topanga Canyon. It's just like this this – and there's like abandoned buildings. It's like the col- colorless Russian countryside and they have this little bag full of like weighted like rocks or nuts and bolts and they just sort of gently throw it ahead of them to see if there's a mine. And they do that a hundred times throughout the movie. I th- it, the movie is about three hours long and I think there's famously only 17 edits in it. So there's like really long takes. Well, um, short production. I guess so. Uh, Get it all done in a couple of days at that rate. I don't use this word to describe movies a lot, but it's boring. (laughs) (laughs) There's usually there's something going on in movies. Usually I describe boring to describe just like a pat action sequence. Like there's nothing going on in this movie. It's boring. I know I'm not one of those critics who says being boring is the worst thing about being, uh, you know, about a movie. I'd rather see a boring. I'd rather watch Stalker again than watch Human Centipede Three, which is a piece of crap. But it's more entertaining. Uh, I, I would actually argue it's not. I just think it's yeah. more. I just think it's There's more, more um, going on in that movie. Yeah, it's, it's more energetic. Yeah. Um, I had a film, film professor at UCLA named Richard Walter who mm. argued uh, that, and I actually I don't entirely agree with this, but I understand his point that the worst thing a movie can be is boring. 
Mm. Like anything else, you have any other sin. I completely disagree with that. Well, I think what he was getting at, and maybe this is me interpreting it my own way, filtering it through my own Mm. philosophy, is a movie has to capture your attention or Mm. you'll turn it off and walk out of the theater. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be slow moving. Mm. That doesn't mean a whole lot has to happen in it. It's just it needs to grab you. It needs to involve you. It needs to engage you. And if it's not doing that, that's kind of its only job. Mm. And you can do that in a myriad of different ways if you understand how to convey what you want through the art form. Well, the problem is what people consider boring is completely subjective. Of course it is. Uh, I mean, I've gotten but it's the many, movie- many arguments about 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think was one of the best movies ever made. And I think, and a I lot think of friends s- think that's just a boring waste of time. I think on some uh, level there's elements that we cannot get past in terms of like where are you on your personal journey? Are you mm-hmm. interested in seeing serious art that doesn't you know, isn't trying to like jangle keys in front of you and distract you? Um, sometimes it's just people have different tastes. But on some level, I believe that it is a movie's responsibility to teach the audience how to watch it. Mm. Um, you don't get very long to do this. But yeah. like the first few minutes of a movie, your first five or ten, I think is the movie. every movie teaching you how to watch this movie. And if the movie hits a ton of familiar tropes, they're saying, this is going to be a familiar movie. Mm. You don't have to, we're not going to challenge anything. We're not going to change anything. Um, if a movie begins... Something like uh, Citizen Kane, for example, begins mm. with a series of images getting closer and closer to Citizen Kane's isolated manor, Xanadu. And every single shot is either a get-out sign or a no-trespassing sign mm. telling you you're not wanted here. It's like a pan up a, a, yeah. a fence. Yeah. But you're also constantly seeing new and interesting things, like here's a whole menagerie of animals. So it's basically just like, here's someone who doesn't want you to know about them, and we're just going to peel away each mm. different layer. That's the movie telling you how to watch Citizen Kane in the first two minutes. That's an example. It's a right. it's a hoity-toity example, but it is an example. So I think it's a movie's responsibility on some level to teach you how to watch that movie. Mm. I, I, I suppose so. I think there's a lot of responsibility put on the viewer as well, though. Oh, yeah. I, the viewer think, has, to, uh, has to be willing to take that journey. And, and I think... Uh, being unwilling to take that journey doesn't make the film boring. And uh, I, I think, agree. and uh, e- even so, even if a film is sort of slow moving, even if you're not fully engaged with it, even if you're you know, going to quote, turn it off or walk out of the theater, I'm, I'm less concerned with practical, practical concerns like that. I feel like um, it, it's your job to look for what that film is doing. Well, and, I think it- and I think even if it's boring you, even if you think that's not a very interesting idea, I think uh, it, it, if there's nothing interesting to you going on in it, I think there's some intellectual importance to be had in searching yourself. I think, I would I think rather, that's something a movie would, can teach yeah. you to do. That's my point. And I, well, I would rather engage with something that is not – maybe not even fully engaged. Just sort of encounter something that is not being successful at fully engaging me than something that's going to fucking offend me. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I would – like I said, I would rather – you, don't mean, you yeah. don't mean just like be offensive. You mean like offend your sensibility. Offend like my sensibility watch this thing. Ma- made so badly that I don't – that I just feel a little bit ill. Here's my here's – my, I got a visceral reaction of cats. First of all, it might have been that horrible free cocktail they gave me beforehand, which is mostly oh, pineapple God. juice, and it had a, a thin film of fondant across the top with the oh, word cats, and I ate the fondant, and I felt real sick. Oh, I, and, I didn't and, go to that screening. And I just had, like, really greasy pizza for lunch beforehand, so I was really ill watching cats. I was at right, the, exactly the right frame of mind to watch a movie like that. Piece of advice uh, I've learned mm. from uh, from being a film critic for many years, uh, if 
a movie tries to get you drunk before you see it, <laughs> do not get drunk. Uh-huh. They're trying to trick you. <laughs> trying <laughs> to trick you into liking this movie. It's a trick. It's a trick. Yeah. They're trying to trick you so, into enjoying it more. But uh, going back to Tarkovsky, I think Solaris is a movie that actually, uh, you know, it, it is incredibly slowly paced. There's a, a shot near the beginning. It's just one long, unbroken shot of a car on the highway. Hmm goes on for, gosh, like seven straight minutes without any dialogue or shots mm-hmm. of people. It's just looking out the front of the window and it's driving along. Yeah. I think something like that's pretty engrossing, but uh, a lot of people are going to be put off by something like that. Well, there's and, a way to Solaris, do it right. Yeah. There's a way to film that correctly. Like, you look at the opening of Manos, The Hands of Fate, <laughs> which is also just people driving for seven minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's shit to look at. <laughs> like, and nothing, and like, it's just, there's nothing about it. Like, framing counts. and yeah. Music can count. And sound design can count if there is no music. These are all things, like, I thoroughly believe that slowness does not equal boring. No, no, no. It no. absolutely does not. Uh, in fact, some of the most fast-paced movies ever are really boring to me. Mm. The last Transformers movie, not the last one, Bumblebee was fine. Uh, the, mm. the last Michael Bay Transformers movie, The Last Night, is so frenetic, it's practically standing still. Yeah, yeah. That's it. It's like, it's moving so fast, it looks like it's not moving. Mm. For me, it's yeah. just boredom personified. <laughs> and, and I love that our, our uh, conversation about Tarkovsky is just about boring movies. Uh, Tarkovsky is actually very emotionally engaging. I think he has a, a good eye as to uh, sort of human wishes, more mm. or less. Uh, you know, that's kind of directly what Solaris is about, about longing. But I think he does have a good sense of, well... Look at the titles of his movies. He has you know, Solaris is about uh, like your memories being resurrected. He has one's called Yvonne's Childhood. It's about looking back on one's childhood, and uh, he has one called Nostalgia, Nostalgia, uh, so which is about looking back. So I think he has a, a, a keen eye for the way, uh, not the way memory functions. That's more like something like um, Last Year at Marion Bad. It's more about the importance memory has in our lives. Yeah. That's my take on, on Andrei Tarkovsky's yeah. filmography. And again, I don't really have a take because I've only seen a couple of his movies. I did like what I've seen and I've always meant to see more. All right. Uh, let's look for another letter here. Uh, here is a letter from Riley. Hello, Riley. Hi, Riley. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping around in time here, like chronologically. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back. I'm going forward. Yeah. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I intended to email you a few weeks ago when you were reviewing The Lodge on your show, but of course I was driving, so I forgot to do, about, do it when I got home. I'm glad you however, didn't do it while you were driving. However now, however, now that The Lodge is getting its wide release this week, week of writing, uh, I'll take advantage. Ago, so with apologies to Whitney, I do have to side with Bibbs' opinion on this film. I thought a lot about his comments on the shifting perspectives and how they failed the movie, and I completely agree. Uh, where my problem lies, more specifically though, is that the film, while hosting a a good first act in introducing ideas and themes only managed to execute a lot of these ideas on surface level. I know there's been an unprecedented amount of hereditary comparisons with the lodge already, but one thing that does come to mind is how the latter film lacks the excruciating dinner table sequence scene equivalent. That's the one where, um, Or Tony Collette essentially just explodes. Uh, I'm going to give um, everyone a, a quick reference on The Lodge in case you missed it because mm-hmm. it came out a while ago. It had a small release. It's a horror film uh, about a couple of kids who are stuck at uh, a lodge for several days with a woman who would be their stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, but they hate her and they blame her for uh, the death of their mother who killed herself after her dad said he was moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while they're there, spooky things start happening and it's all very art house, A24 type horror. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
the Lodge did not seem interested in dissecting the broken family dynamics, which is just so cleverly set up in the film's beginning, and that was disappointing to see. And in turn, that brings me to my larger question slash observation. The, quote, art house horror film has Ooh. gained traction in the past several years. I just talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're simpatico. Good yeah. job. And, uh, yeah, you and Riley, you're, you're practically you. one. Uh, in the past several years, and has brought us several fantastic, creepy, slow-burning movies. Yep. However, I've noticed that uh, even here, there is a sense of utilizing the style of the slow burn to placate the energy of the script. The style of the, quote, art house movie, known for slow camera panning, isolating imagery and settings, and a droning score, (laughs) seems to be the substitution for having engaging characters and a sense of an arc for them. Um, I won't list any... I couldn't agree more. (laughs) It depends on the movie. Uh, Of course. You're going to bring up It Comes at Night. I know you are. um, uh, I actually wasn't yet, but now now I will. I won't list any specific movie because that's a matter of opinions, but I find something disengaging with the art house style and a director's lack of characterization with the characters. When stepping back, though, I realize this isn't a unique trend. It's uh, simply style over substance. And the horror genre of the late 2000s and early early 2010s has certainly had this happen with the boom of found footage films. Found footage is a novelty idea that could be made for pennies, thus the onslaught of the subgenre. Some are great, some are all right, some are trash. But actually, I think the trends of these two styles are similar. The difference of quality comes from production, not necessarily the script. With this in mind, where do you think you draw the line on style over substance in films, horror or otherwise? Uh, You two are writers, like myself. How does that affect uh, how you perceive these kinds of movies that are not asking you to pay attention to dialogue or characters that behave just to enjoy the visual stimulation? of the movie. Cheers, Riley. Uh, Riley, first off, mm. uh, I think you made some very astute observations. There certainly, I agree with them. Mm. Uh, at least a lot of them. Uh, Art House has gone from being simply a measure of a movie's distribution or ambitions, mm. and it has become, thanks to films like Hereditary, uh, thanks to films like It Comes at Night, thanks to a variety of uh, mm. horror films with very high-minded and lofty ideas, uh, become a style. And mm. when you... Once something becomes a style, it becomes something that people Predict- can imitate. Yeah. Well, it becomes becomes Imitatable, yeah, predictable, yeah. true, but like also something that people can imitate without hitting the substance. I think the reason why Hereditary works as well as it does, and I remember seeing Hereditary and thinking this is a really fantastic film. Even I thought it actually was a bit derivative in some ways mm. of other movies, but it felt like something genuine. It felt like what Ari Aster was really getting at, and I think he's getting at this with Midsommar, which I think is even more derivative. Uh, is pain. He wants to really explore the depth of human emotional, psychological pain. And I think he cares as much about that as he does about the scares, and I think that elevates the scares. Mm. Uh, Not that the elevated horror is a thing, but I think it it approaches that level of elevation that we're talking about, and that's why his movies make such an impact. And I think The Lodge is an example of a film which imitates the overall style Mm -hmm. of an arthouse horror movie. It has portent. It has... Uh, all of its shots linger mm. long enough to add a lot of weight and significance. But I agree with you. I actually don't think it actually has that much under the surface. I think it approaches it. I think it pokes it. But I don't think it digs. Mm. So that's why I didn't care for that movie. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, you're talking about sort of uh, general styles. And I think a lot of this is just trends. Um, you sure. Know, and and um, Comparing it to found footage was very apt. Horror movies go in cycles. We find things that we like and people start imitating it. Cycles, but I think it's it's sort of dangerous to assume all horror films are kind of the same just because they're all following the aesthetic of the day. Oh, true. Uh, A lot lot of films are being shot this way just because that's the way films are shot now, Um, and it's not necessarily. 
necessarily that you know the filmmakers are choosing to cleave to that style. It's that they're choosing things that they know are effective, and or I or think or, think, or at least think are effective. I think and, that um, I think that's kind of splitting hairs, though, don't you think? Like, no, I think this is an important uh, aesthetic dis- distinction. I think it's make, effective, but also other movies are doing it. Yeah. Other movies are doing it. That's why I know it's effective. That's my point. Yeah, uh, no, I just think I, I think they're I think they're two halves of the same coin, but okay. all right. but. Um, uh, something like the lodge, uh, I, I don't see as an art house theater, art house kind of f- film. There, that's really kind of an exploitation movie. Sure, there's some moments of extreme shock that don't have the same uh, kind of aesthetic as something like um, Annabelle Comes Home, which is <laughs> you know just a big fun haunted house kind of movie. Really good movie. Yeah, very underrated. But it, you know, ni- nice and spooky. The scene with the TV freaked me the hell really out. Creepy, um, yeah. uh, Again, that's something that, like, resembled nightmares I had. Sure. Uh, But I think, you know, saying that the Lodge is going for something really deep and philosophical, and you're meant to believe it's going for something deep and philosophical that's not in the script, and you're believing it through the style, uh, sure, that's fine. Uh, then it doesn't necessarily have a very good script, or it's not ex- the script yeah. isn't delving very far. Um, I when I'm watching that point, it's kind of part of a trend. It's not necessarily mm. exemplar of the trend. Does that make sense? Sure, uh, but uh, what a film gets to, especially a horror film. When you're talking about horror movies, the most important thing is if it f- makes you feel uneasy or makes you feel afraid. Mm-hmm. The script can suck and it can still do that. That's true. There can be nothing in the script that makes any goddamn sense and it can still do that. Right. Uh, And I think if it captures something that makes you really uneasy, whether or not it makes sense in any kind of psychological or structural way, uh, that it's unimportant. Uh, I think once it has got its hooks into you, once it has touched on a certain kind of topic, and uh, this is the way it works for me anyway. Once it's kind of frightened me and presented me with a really interesting idea, I don't care if it concludes badly or if it's poorly characterized because mm. that's not the way nightmares operate. Yeah. I, so uh, the, the, yeah. the Lodge, uh, t- to reiterate my argument when, when I reviewed it, was I think it's a lot – it delves into something really kind of important about the way women's feelings are dictated to them by the people around them and how I think the shifting perspective is a good way to sort of back our way into that. It's not about the woman's experience at first. It's about the kid's experience. That's and true. Then, and but then, 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 then we, I think then it we shifts, focus, then shifts over into the main character and it turns out she has been – horrendously manipulated throughout throughout this movie and okay. uh, she is told that she needs to put on a brave face pull yourself up by the bootstraps these really condescending things that women hear frequently okay uh and you know you, you see this in movies all the time how women are really kind of talked down to and uh, i feel like this was a way to kind of whiplash that around in uh, an exploitation movie sort of way I see where you're coming from. Mm. I do. I actually I, I see how the movie should work that way. Mm. I don't think it does. Because I think that by shifting the focus so narrowly mm. to one character, uh, the movie is actually changing its vernacular so significantly You, it's distracting. And the only reason to do that mm. is to pull a magician's trick. Like, look over here. Because I'm doing something over here. And then I'm so consciously aware of that, that nothing rings true. Because I know the movie is... I know what the movie's planning. It's predictable. In a way that I don't think the movie wants to be. Right. And I found that frustrating, and I found that rather shallow. But 
to the second part of this email, um, there's a conversation that I actually haven't had in a long time, um, but I used to have all the time, uh, called style versus substance. Mm. Um, a lot of people talk about style versus substance. I remember talking about it a lot in film school. Uh, what's more important, style, substance? Is, and I think the, the obvious answer that comes to mind first is, well, of course, substance has got to matter more. Mm-hmm. Because substance is the substance. Style is just how you deliver it. And as I have uh, grown and my tastes have evolved and my knowledge of how uh, art and entertainment and mm-hmm. uh, uh, themes, every, how, how everything works, basically, um, the, the answer I have come to at this point in my life mm-hmm. Is they're the exact same thing. You, Thank you, Marshall McLuhan. Well, yeah. There's there, you cannot have you cannot present substance without some style. Mm. Your style could be a lack of formal style. Yeah, but that's a style in which you tell it, and the way that you convey something matters. We've all read something that was very important and significant, but presented in a very dry way. Hmm. That fucked up the substance. The style and the substance are completely inextricably intertwined because mm-hmm. you cannot convey substance without some form of style. Ergo, the style needs to match or at the very least provide a, a, a fitting counterpoint mm-hmm. or some other harmonious uh, uh, wavelength. Yeah, it, needs, it needs to connect to the substance in a direct way. Yeah, when... When you're dealing with a, a, an expertly made film, the, the style and the sub- substance are going to be married. This yeah. is true. Um, and sometimes you can see that a film is uh, has nothing to say, has nothing on its mind, mm-hmm. and but at the same time it can still really get a big reaction out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, Avengers Endgame. Oh, well, what's, what's I disagree that, on what's, that. What's that movie about? Um, I, I'm not going to get into that. I think that's but, a bad example. I think of something yeah. like um, – oh, what was that movie um, that uh, Timur Bekmembetov did? Uh, before oh, oh, Night Watch? Night Watch is a okay. great example. Where it's very stylish. Yeah, yeah. But like it has vampires some, driving yeah. motorcycles up walls. Yeah, it's, and it's basically Underworld. Underworld's another good example here. Underworld is all fetish. Mm. Underworld is all style. And there's there's not a thought in its head. Not yeah. really, no. It's all basically vampires and werewolves are fighting each other and there's a human in the middle. That's all plot. There's really nothing significant in its head. But the style, in mm. that case is the only reason to go. Mm. You go to lose yourself in fetish. Yeah, and, and, uh, but that that doesn't always work. I don't like those Underworld movies. No, I'm not saying it's good, but uh, that's yeah. what it's doing. Mm. Uh, another one, uh, one I've come to appreciate more and more over time, not that I love the movie, but as James Cameron's Avatar. Mm. Uh, I feel like he was, and that's that's much more of like an intellectual technical exercise, but uh, I've, I admire what he was doing with his technicals and with the visuals mm. in that movie because that's kind of what why that movie exists. Uh, what's the movie about? Mm, Dances with Wolves Light. You know, yeah, what, it's how, how, all, all colonialism the, bad. Yeah, all, all and the, yeah, it is. But like, all, that's the, all, not very all the arguments you heard lobbed at it, it back in two thousand nine stand. They're all yeah. still true, and it's like it's not like we need, need a grand reconsideration of Avatar. Uh, but yeah, that that is a film that is you could say style over substance. But the style is the substance in that movie. It's meant to be so dazzling. That you're going to be swept away. Yeah. And it is that dazzling. The special effects at the, ta- at, at the time and today are still completely like, – It's one of it's the very few, pretty film. It's one of the few times special effects actually wowed me mm-hmm. in the digital age. Fair enough. Um, one of my um, favorite <laughs> – one of my favorite works of film criticism 
is actually Prince's music video for Bat Dance. <laughs> okay. And I mean that. I know it sounds like a joke, because a mm. lot of people look at like Prince's music for Batman, and like it's awesome music, but maybe it doesn't fit the film. I think Prince did something really kind of brilliant with that music, and I think uh, Bat Dance in particular, you look at the music video he made for Bat Dance, mm. it's all the psychosexual subtext behind a Tim Burton style. <laughs> okay. Tim, everything Tim Burton put in that movie, Vicky Vale's tiny dress, mm. Batman's form-fitting rubber, the Joker's zoot suits. The, Prince recognized that something that Tim Burton kind of wasn't engaging with, but was putting on the screen in every shot <laughs> was a fetishized style. When that underneath that is a very sexual interpretation of Batman and the Joker and the kind of woman who would fall in love with Batman. <laughs> and what makes these characters appealing? What makes these characters so fascinating? And it's not just because they're overacting. It's not just because they're fighting each other. It's because they are living these large lives and they are mm. expressing themselves in physical, stylish ways that no other human being gets to do. Mm. And when you look at the way that Prince embraces, sends up, combines the costuming, the choreography, scenes from the movie, uh, even even the costumes itself, Prince's outfit is literally half down the middle, mm. half, half Batman, Batman, half Joker. <laughs> it, it seems like it's yeah. just kind of garish, but you realize he's actually just saying, listen, it's all the same, it's mm. all kink. And I think he exposes in Tim Burton's Batman, a movie which you could argue is kind of shallow, that the style is very, very much the substance mm -hmm. and that the, and this is something that Tim Burton went into even greater depth in in Batman Returns, where it's about a certain sense of duality and outsiderism and, mm -hmm. yeah. And, I, and, and fetishism. And fetishism. Yeah, and I think Very directly. Um, 100%. So I think... That's anyway. I think that's something interesting to think about. Yeah, I th but you know, it, it's not going to work if the style isn't doing anything for you. And sure. so, if you love that style, you know, if, if all horror movies look kind of the same to you and you like it, mm -hmm. then you're probably going to get a lot more out of it. Yeah. Uh, but I, even the I lack think, of style can be fascinating. The, like Clerks this, has no style to yeah. speak of. It's but it's fascinating because it just feels very genuine. For, well, natural. It feels really raw and really natural. Yeah. I, I feel like this the style is the gateway through which one must pass in order to get to the substance. Uh, and mm. there can be any any amount of style, and sometimes there's so much style you can't get to the substance. That's true. Sometimes there's no style at all, like something like Clerks, and the substance is right there up front. Uh, mm. If you don't have both, if you don't have style, you can have substance. But I think if you don't have substance, the style is going to be, no matter how dazzling it is, it's gonna just not going to have anything for you. Mm. I think maybe we can appreciate those things when we're not feeling in a substantive mood mm. or if we're not mature and we're just sort of like, ooh, neat things. Yeah, that, but that's then, a cool thing. But yeah. then, and that's fine to a point, but the older you get, the more you realize just how shallow that is. Mm. Anyway, um, the great question, and thank mm. you for that. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, here's a letter from Hayden. Hello, Hayden. Oh, hi, Hayden. Uh, hello. I, uh, this is about cats. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Juggalos can and juggalos do. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> Drink some Fago. Uh, hello, I think a crucial part in any cult movie is discovery. Thesis. Uh, wh <laughs> whether that is... Was that in parentheticals? Or did that, you that, that was my added. Um, whether that is upon the release of the film or later down the line, most cult films are discovered by a group of people. That is why the cult around cats feels off to me. One, I tried watching the movie, and I couldn't make it through 40 minutes and genuinely don't see what's fun about the movie. 
Oh, well, it's not fun. <laughs> I disagree, but fair enough. Well, I mean, it's it's fun because it's not fun. Uh, two, the cult feels prepackaged by the internet. Uh, before the movie even came out, many theaters were already planning late-night screenings. I never got the sense the cult happened organically, like with The Room, or even more recently with Faithful, Faithful Findings. Mm. Do you see Faithful Findings? The Neil I did Green see Faithful film? Findings. Yeah. No more books. <laughs> Movies that had no hype and were truly discovered. In all honesty, mm. the discovery process was with the trailer and it ended there. And in the long run, I think that's why Cats won't become a cult movie in the same way that The Room did. I don't want to dunk on anyone's enjoyment, but I feel like Cats was forced and not made. Um, uh, it's, I, you know what? I can see where you're coming from, but I don't entirely agree. We, we, uh, a few years ago, you and I started having some pretty serious conversations as to whether or not cult films were even possible anymore. Because mm. cult films, the life cycle of a cult film is much faster now with the internet. Yeah. And uh, things that used to be these kind of secret passwords or secret handshakes between two people who were in the know don't exist anymore because the internet can proliferate it anywhere. For, uh, and, yeah. Here's a good example. Mm. Um, a movie that oh, I thought I was, for a long time, I was the only person who saw it. Tammy and the T-Rex. Yeah, there you go. That's... Fucking weird movie where uh, Paul Walker is dating Denise Richards. Paul Walker gets killed by a mountain lion and a mad scientist puts Paul Walker's brain into a dinosaur like a T-Rex. It's a robot, too. It's a robot It's a T-Rex. robot dinosaur hu- fueled by Paul Walker's human brain. And Paul Walker tries to reconnect with uh, Denise Richards, even though he's a dinosaur. Um, it's fucking terrible. It's really <laughs> fun, though. It's a very entertaining movie. And because it's absurd. It's, yeah, it's great. It's, like, it's, it's, a hell of a, it's a hell of a watch. It's never boring. It's very funny. Mm. Um, sometimes funny on purpose, sometimes not. Um. And all of a sudden, like within the last year, because I think it was Vinegar Syndrome put it out, like mm-hmm. a, like a nice fancy Blu-ray release. All of a sudden, people are talking about, oh, Tanny the T-Rex. Here are all these midnight screenings and everything like that. And all of a sudden, it feels like it, it feels popular when it actually is culty because yeah. the people that we follow are all the people who do cult stuff. When right. actually, I think it, Cats feels like it came. A lot of people were eager to accept cats because once they saw cats and it actually lived up to exactly how weird it was, gonna, they thought it would be in their heads. Mm. A lot of people thought it was going to be weird. If the movie wasn't, it wouldn't have a cult. All of a sudden, the movie is exactly as ill-advised as it sounded <laughs> from day one, and it did nothing to rescue itself. No, it's just a, a complete mistake, and it's fascinating to watch. I think. Did, and, did, you, did you hear the word about like the cat butts? Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about the cat butts in a All second. Right. But um, but but more to the point, I think uh, I think we we just talked about the idea of an instant classic. I think an instant cult classic is okay because people didn't go see cats. We're thinking it was really about unpopular. The yeah. people that we're talking about who are talking about cats. Actually, a very small percentage of the population, but they're all very loud when they're in a room together. And Twitter is that room. Mm. Most people didn't see cats. Most people didn't want to see cats. Most because, people will never want looked, to see cats. Because it looked terrible. And you know what? It was. It's quite bad. <laughs> so I do think that although I think people were eager to accept cats as a cult film, I don't think it was manufactured because the if it was manufactured by the studio mm. and the studio was telling it was a cult film, then I would call bullshit. But these are people who were eager for cats to be a cult film, discovered that it was a cult film, and then embraced it. Mm. I do believe that Discovery can have this really wonderful, uh, add a really wonderful layer mm-hmm. to a cult film, especially if you feel like you're the only one who knows and you're introducing people to it. 
but I don't think that has to be a criteria. I think it's no, okay no. if like because um, like a lot of people like I'm trying to think of other cult movies that like were came out and were huge bombs, but then found an audience later, like Popeye. Yeah, or like Popeye. Uh, everyone um, knew Popeye or Showgirls. Is another example. Yeah, yeah, Showgirls was a cult film almost immediately. There were a handful well, of people who were really on board with just like, celebrating this weird film from the start, but it was a huge bomb. Yeah, it lost, lost, like lost the studio a bunch of money. It was just this like huge. Yeah, just like Cats, this big majestical odyssey that cost a bunch of money and just tanked immediately and uh i remember actually when it tanked there was this vocal minority who really wanted to sort of see showgirls become the midnight show and i think later the year it came out it came out in 95 uh, later the uh that year like a few months after it came out there was a midnight screening at the new art here in los angeles Mm -hmm. on friday which they weren't doing at the time they said yeah let's try this out let's see if it has a cult audience and it didn't Wait yet. a de- yet. Wait a decade, and and the, oh look, mm. there it is, two thousand five gigantic DVD box set that comes with blindfolds and posters and shot yeah. glasses and drinking games and comment like ironic commentary tracks from people who have been championing it from the start. Yeah, it it's so the cult was sort of growing uh, in this quiet sort of way. Now yeah. I feel like when it it takes a while. That feels a lot more genuine to me than if something like tries to snatch cult appeal immediately. But again, and the, the film, example, Tom Hooper didn't try to do that. No, he though. didn't. Yeah. He didn't. And I think if you want to consider Tom Hooper wanted an Oscar. For if that. you want to consider Cats uh, a genuine cult movie, give it a couple of years, see how how much people are still talking about it. Yeah, give it time. Yeah. And uh, you know, see if there's you know ironic commentary tracks on the Blu-ray of Cats <laughs> in a couple of years, <laughs> then you'll know. Uh, Cats, I think, is a lot more genuine than something like Repo the Genetic Opera, if you remember mm. that movie. See, that's um, a movie that was trying to be culty from the beginning. It was trying to be culty from yeah. the beginning. Uh, it was, it's an opera. It's all sung. It has cult-like figures like Paris Hilton has a role in it. A Joan Jett has a cameo mm-hmm. in it. And it's about it's a science fiction film that takes place in the future when people have to like buy organs on layaway, and if they can't pay up their organs, the repo man comes and rips their organs out of their body. Yeah, there's actually um, a non musical movie with the exact same premise called Repo Man. Repo Man, which did come out after Repo the Genetic Opera. So it's also the better film, actually. But it's uh, not bad. It it has a really sick climax. Oh, the if climax you're is yeah. the, the climax is just disgusting. Dude, kudos for the climax. Like, seriously, yeah, like they, the they movie actually, ends really well. They actually went there. It's yeah. like, you know, there's wounds in that movie. Um, <laughs> golly, are there wounds? But yeah, I feel like Repo the Genetic Opera. And this is something I say a lot. You can always tell when something is made by a genuinely weird person. And something that is made by somebody who is sort of faking weirdness. Someone who wants to make money off somebody of being who, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. They, they, they find weird things interesting, but they're not genuinely strange among uh, uh, themselves. Right. Uh, and I feel like Repo, Repo the Genetic Opera is definitely the latter. And they uh, sold it as this kind of weird oddity right out of the gate. Okay, fine, it's a low-budget thing. It's this weird opera. It's a science fiction movie. It's got mm. these weird cult figures in it. Sure, go see it. You'll see this weird thing. Yeah. But almost immediately... A lot, uh, I think, and I think the studio sponsored a lot of these. Is they started like asking people to dress up in costume and start doing live enactments, yeah. like with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, they tried to make it happen. They tried, to, yeah, they were really trying to force the issue. This is actually going to be this weird kind of midnight phenomenon. Now, having just a live element to a fun movie, no matter what its cultural clout, that's just a fun thing you can do. Of course Why not? It is. Yeah. Uh, the the Rocky Horror cast uh, at the local theater uh, close to us, the New Art, uh, they will do shadow casts for movies like Clue. 
really widely known and lo- widely beloved movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call Clue a cult movie. It's actually just a well-known comedy film. I think it was a cult movie, but it became so well-established, it became a genuine classic. Yeah, so, so, same with, like, The Princess Bride. Yeah. That, that was a little kind of cult yeah. thing for a while, but Princess now everybody Bride knows it. Princess Bride in theaters. I saw it in theaters, by the way. Uh, fair, so did I. The few, but so yeah. did I. But like, it was not a hit. It mm-hmm. found it found its acclaim like on TV years mm-hmm. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I guess what we're talking about here is just—it's difficult to pin down anymore because a cult film was a little bit more cut and dry in the era when you had to discover it on really hard-to-find VHS tapes or theaters alone. I think there's just different levels of cult, though. I think something like The Room, where someone just made it by themselves, outside the studio system, but, you know, rented out of their own screens to see it, of course it's going to take longer for that to find an audience. Whereas something that was pushed as an Oscar contender, it was intended to be a big Oscar film. It was from the director of Les Miserables and The King's Mm -hmm. Speech. And it had it was in tons of theaters. It had a giant cast. Of course, people were going to be interested. Mm-hmm. And the people who saw it said, "Holy shit, you guys! <laughs> this thing is fucking weird and terrible." And I kind of love how weird and terrible it is. You don't and, see things this weird and terrible too often. And and it's the it's, kind of thing where I think people are are still kind of fascinated mm-hmm. by it months later, which is a long time in most circumstances. Yeah. Most movies come and go and. People forget about him in six months. Uh, but, like, Cats is just coming out on home video, and people are still talking yeah. about it. And now there are rumors that there was an original cut of the movie where the cats had buttholes. <laughs> now, if you have a cat, sometimes when the cat's walking around and its tail is up, you can see it has a butthole. Uh, well, yeah. That's, I mean, look, it's it's not... I'm not being immature about this. That's just true. I mean, I'm not using the scientific term. But, like, that's just a thing you might notice if you have cats. And for whatever reason, it's one of the things that people are just saying, like, wait a minute, these cats have no buttholes. I'm like, did you really need them to? It's a good letters episode. We're talking about emotional elevation and cat buttholes. But, like, and now people are just saying, like, maybe there was a version where they put the buttholes in. And then they realized realized it was a terrible idea, so they had to cut it all out. If that's true, that's hilarious. Mm. I kind of doubt that that's true. true. But then again, considering how every single creative decision in the movie Cats doesn't make Mm. any sense, it wouldn't shock me to find out it was true. Mm. So if there is indeed a quote-unquote butthole cut... Release the butthole cut! ...of Cats, Mm. please release that. (laughs) Just go for it. That's how the studio can embrace it. Like, after the fact, Mm. going, we're sorry, here's your butthole cut. If they put out a (laughs) Blu-ray that said, Cats the butthole cut... You know it's penetrated as a cult phenomenon. Oh um, yeah, but uh, overall, what we're talking about here is is popular penetration, and that's a difficult thing to gauge. Um, I think, I think there something like The Room. It's not a cult movie anymore. I think The Magic is sort of off. I think we've I learned. I think it's still technically a cult movie. It's just the people who uh, follow cult movies find it a little passe now. The well, mainstream I mean, is yeah. still cult. Yeah, and, and it's uh, still cult compared to the Avengers or whatever. Even you know? even at the time, though, um, uh, Mark Edward Hoy spoke very eloquently about this. He feels that uh, when you compare The Room to something like Rocky Horror, Rocky Horror, whether or not you think that's a good or a bad film, you the people who go to see it have a, an affection for it. They admire its its queerness and its weirdness, and it actually has legitimately good music and some mm-hmm. really fun performances. There's, there's things to uh, unironically appreciate. Exactly, it, yeah. and and. Uh, so there's a, a kind of a celebratory feeling about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Even if you're laughing at it a little bit, yeah. you're still celebrating it. Uh, 
the room has he felt has always been about kind of derision. Mm. It's about laugh, laughing at this object, and you you look at Tommy Wiseau and the in- interviews that Tommy Wiseau has given about the room and how he's really changed his tune about what he was intending to do. Yeah. Makes the film feel really a lot less genuine than it was. I think, mm. and now that we know so much about it, and they've made a movie about the making of it, it's like mm. th- that mystery, that little weird element of mystery is now gone ab- ab- about the room. I don't it's, know, it's, man. It, like, I, I always it, had a different it, take on the room it, than everyone else. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I, I saw it without a cult audience, so yeah. I'm just like, this, this is just a fucking terrible movie. Well, I saw it like, yeah. I was, yeah. everyone kept telling me, you "Gotta see the room, you gotta see the room." I'm like, "You gotta go see it with a midnight audience," and I'm like, "No, that sounds terrible." So I said, "I'll just watch the movie," and mm. so I did. I rented it, and um, what I saw was a very badly made, occasionally unintentionally funny mm. uh, film by a guy who clearly wanted to make a real movie, clearly didn't know how. Mm. And there's something very sad about that. Yeah, I yeah. get sad there's, there's when I watch some, that. With, some pathos involved. I, no, I, I've described it a lot as just reading like, like a high school kid's poetry, but he doesn't know anything about poetry. Like he has no uh, art to it. There's no elegance. Mm. There's no insight. He just knows that he feels things. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to put it on paper and supposed to have some kind of rhyme scheme. And like, that's it. That's all Tommy Wiseau oh, knew was, about filmmaking. What's that, he- that great headline in the onion? Um, mm-hmm. It's like a, uh, crisis, uh, really traumatic breakups lead to really bad poetry. Yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah. Mm. That's basically it. It's really bad poetry mm. from someone who had something genuine they wanted to express and had absolutely no idea how to mm. do it. That's an example where there was substance mm. and there was no style and the lack of style kind of hindered the substance. And mm-hmm. so the substance never got delivered. Yeah. People got so distracted by the style, which was inherent to how the substance was delivered, that the movie became a comedy. And I find that sad. I find the room sad just in its construct, because mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to be telling a sad story about loneliness and isolation and betrayal. And also sad because no one picks up on that, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're so distracted by the artifice. Mm-hmm. I find the movie, I always found the movie just. In a way, it kind of this interesting, weirdly pure work of art. Like, not <laughs> well, good per se, but pure. Well, and there's what, something what, kind of refreshing what, about what they call outsider art. Exactly. Like, yeah, but yeah, something like Tammy and the T Rex. It's like it's so weird. And once it, you know, dozens of people are making you know snarky internet videos about something like Tammy and the T Rex. It's like, well, that's not really un- underground anymore. And but it once is, it's though. not underground, it's, again, we, our perspective is that's true. We, we're we, part we, of this we run small in these community. circles. Yeah. yeah, if you follow people like you, me, you know, all the people who really love weird cult cinema, it feels like oh, everyone knows about this. They don't. Okay, <laughs> they really don't. Even cats, <laughs> most people don't give a shit. We are a little. We're lucky that we live in a world where people who actually care about something as mm. weird and bad as cats, where something like that can seem passe all of a sudden. Because let me tell you something, <laughs> I guarantee to you mm. that the makers of cats wished it was that popular. Uh, yeah, I they guess, w- yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, everyone likes it. Like, yeah, uh, they, everyone, they fucking wish. <laughs> everyone likes it, ironically. Now, no, yeah. it's still a failure. Yeah, if it's just as Seth Rogen is live tweeting it, doesn't if, mean it's popular if now. The, and yeah. even if they liked it, ironically, they didn't like it, ironically, enough for it to make money. <laughs> yeah. It's still a failure. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I still think it counts. Mm. But anyway, uh, we have time for one more quick one. One more. Uh, here is a letter from, let me look at the bottom here, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Uh, dear Wibbs and Bettany. Ooh, am I Paul Bettany? Yes. I like being Paul Bettany. He's, he's a good a, actor. He's yeah. a very good actor. He's underappreciated. Watch, watch Master and Commander. Everybody just yeah. watch Master and Commander. Just in general. Uh, I was interested in William's take on The Hunt. 
uh, it hadn't occurred to me while watching it that The Hunt is basically Death Race 2000. Yes, it is. For the modern era. And this helped me to appreciate the film's strengths, particularly the gag at the beginning, where the film plays with our expectations as to who the protagonists will be. Though it does tip its hand a little bit too much that it's obviously going to be Betty Gilpin the moment we see her. Yeah. But it does have some flaws that I was surprised you didn't call out. Okay. I'm not talking about the Herculean feat the movie expects us to do in suspending our disbelief uh, when it's revealed how, quote, the plan was meant to work. That's fine. I'm talking about the politics, or lack thereof, in this ostensibly very political movie. Yeah. Your take was that it were meant to laugh at ourselves through this movie through the recognition of common talking points among left and right firebrands, but I'm not sure that take reads based on what the movie presents. Okay. The buzzwords are just used as cheap joke filler, the same way a lot of com- comedies use pop culture references, which I found to be doubly disappointed because the film has some really solid dark humor. Uh, beyond that, the film is so milquetoast with how it handles any subject matter. Obviously, the rich liberals who are hunting people are the bad guys, and their behavior is straight out of a hack political cartoon your racist aunt puts on Facebook. <laughs> but rather than present a nuanced version of Red Staters any time uh, any one of the, quote, deplorables who serve as prey get any more than two lines, they reveal themselves to be just as shallow and despicable. This cuts the legs out from under the villains, and they seem to have a legitimate case against their targets, even if their methods are cruel and extreme. Maybe this was meant to take the curse off the horrific violence but in, a, in the movie so the audience could laugh without guilt, but it really makes the whole thing feel hollow. <laughs> Lucas, pl- Lucas playing, playing with, with, bowl. with, with the, a glass bowl on the floor, and that, that's what that noise is. Yeah. Uh, it would be fine if both sides are filled with cartoonish facsimiles instead of actual characters if Betty Gilpin's heroine had some perspective, but she really doesn't. We know very little about her other than she's a very capable and has an extremely cynical worldview. It's not even clear if the things she tells us about herself are true. She doesn't seem to ar- agree with other Red Staters' ethos, but never seems to disagree either, except when one character refers to a refugee baby as a, quote, crisis actor. She takes no stance beyond her own survival and has no ideals beyond her own self-preservation. It becomes almost distracting how she walks a razor-thin line of not having ideals. It's like someone wanted to make her character appeal to everyone but overplayed their hand and made her appeal to no one. Uh, Gilpin gives a great performance full of quirks and ticks that uh, suggest a character is there, uh, is there that isn't just on the page. There's no big message when the big twist, which uh, the movie just breezily glosses past, comes. I, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know what yeah. it is, but... Um, at the end of the day, the movie just feels like another version of the South Park caring about thing is for, things is for losers message, but with weaker jokes. All this make, uh, makes it sound like I hate the movie or that I'm mad at it, but I always found the whole thing to be too light or lacking any real ethos to get me riled up. It's fun, but rather empty. Death Race 2000 has some sharpness to its satire (laughs) and manages to humanize its outlandish characters just enough to make their deaths have weight. The best we get from the hunt is finding out that one of the hunted was going to celebrate her birthday by eating an entire pie. (laughs) Betty Gilpin may have even killed someone who was another victim and uh, and the movie and her character don't seem to care about that at all. Uh, I enjoyed the hunt well enough, but it seems to have solved the quandary of how to make art apolitical by just having the politics at once overlapping one another without having anything significant to say about any of them. I'm reminded of J.K. Sinema's character at the end of Burn After Reading. What did we learn? <laughs> uh, maybe I'll discover more and latch onto in future viewings, but I had, it had one great lead performance, some clever black humor, and, uh, and is carry, that is carrying the movie that's basically a less deep version of 2009's Operation Endgame, a totally strange battle royale pastiche. Um, there's also a few PSs here, but did you want to comment on... Are the PSs uh, unrelated? Yes. Okay, well, let me, uh, let me just address your th- uh, thoughts mm-hmm. on The Hunt. Um, I see where you're coming from. I, I, I genuinely do. Um, I think it's not so much that the movie doesn't have convictions, is that the movie doesn't think that its characters have the convictions that they think they do. 
I think yeah. it's I think it's a movie about people who are substituting memes and buzzspeak and easily um, mimicable traits that actual idealists would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in actuality, they're just soaked up in whatever is popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like the idea that you know. Uh, Pizzagate should not be taken seriously. Mm. Like, it's not. It's not worth... I mean, we need to talk mm. about like how pe- weirdly people actually took that seriously, but mm. it's not actually a thing. Yeah, so- and so the idea that there's a character who would take the film's version of that, Mannergate, mm. uh, seriously, that in and of itself is kind of a joke. And I think the idea is that all of the characters in The Hunt victim or killer alike, with the exception of Betty Gilpin, who we'll talk about in one second, um, they all have these beliefs that are based on nothing. Hmm. They are shallow people. And that's not saying that all conservatives are shallow or that all liberals are shallow. It's that shallow people suck, hmm. whoever they are. And yeah, that maybe that's a general message, but so be it. As for Betty Gilpin, um, I interviewed uh, the filmmaker Greg Zobel, and um, sadly not all the interview saw print because, um, eh, you know, that's the way the industry works. I couldn't, I couldn't fit it all into every article I wrote. But um, one of the issues he, he discussed was the idea that her character never expresses her ideals is maybe something that we should focus on as kind of a point of the film, that whatever she believes, she's not performative. Yeah. About it. Now, does that make it a good movie? Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the amount of entertainment I gleaned from this movie was more well, than okay. others, but maybe maybe I have okay. a point. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, I haven't seen the movie, I know. So, so I can't comment. But what you're describing uh, and what, uh, what we heard in this letter is that you're saying it's sort of cr- critical of – you know, hearing from the filmmaker, it's critical of uh, performative politics. Mm-hmm. And when it's taking the that, le- That's my quote, not his, just yeah, to be yeah. clear. Uh, when, when it's taking these performative politics as the ultimate sin and saying that the left and the right are equally guilty of this, um, it, it starts to take on a kind of tone of hipster nihilism to me. There's definitely where, a bit of hipster like, nihilism. Uh, like, um, a movie that, that I enjoy just because it's completely absurd, but actually has a really uh, unbelievably cynical worldview is Team America World Police. Sure. And that is a film that feels that uh, fascists, politicians, and Hollywood actors who express their political beliefs are all equally bad and should all be destroyed. Yeah, which is like, ridiculous. It's ridiculous, but that's the view of that movie. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Yeah. Uh, and there's a, you know, great films about nihilism and about the emptiness of the world and about, you know, ha- hatred in the dark night of the soul. Uh, but there's a certain kind of very adolescent nihilism that rubs me the wrong way. And sure. when I see it in a movie, this sort of like, look how dark and edgy the world is. We, we needn't care about anything. And what did, what our, sure. our listener wrote about South park, you know, it's the ha- having feelings is for dummies. Did, did you get uh, you know now that you know what the filmmaker said? Don't are you not getting any of that? From actually, the I don't. Yeah. I, I actually don't. I think that this movie isn't trying to get at anything that genuine. I think this movie yeah. is trying to perform a bit of cultural catharsis in which okay, everyone's mad at each other. Work it out in this movie, and then we're all going to go home and go back to mm. do something real. 
Um, I got the vibe coming out of this movie that I got from certain exploitation films from the 1970s, mm-hmm. where like the cops like would Death be Race 2000. Well, Death Race 2000, or something where like the cops would be portrayed as so outlandishly corrupt and racist because mm-hmm. we're just making sort of a point right now that it's so overt that it's laughable. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. I found a lot of entertainment value off of it. I think a lot of people are looking to this movie to be as profound as something like Battle Royale, which I do think reaches that, or as ingenious as something like Death Race 2000, when instead I think it is a highly entertaining LARF. Hmm, Uh, So that's my take. I don't think it's, you know, a brilliant political satire. I think, in fact, it's trying to only engage with these things on a surface level so that everyone can enjoy sending them up on a similar level. Okay. I think if it had had very specific ideals, it would have become potentially what people were concerned about, which is just... Too preachy. Too preachy, Mm. which arguably might have been a better film, arguably might have been a worse film. I don't know because we haven't uh, seen it. However that they handled it. Yeah. yeah. What are the PSs? Uh, P.S. I also wanted to add a movie to your Max von Sydow recommendations. Uh, the Ultimate Warrior, a film from 1975 about a post-apocalyptic New York City in the far-off future of 2012. <laughs> Sydow plays the leader of a collective of people living in a fortified city block in post-pandemic Manhattan. Sydow's character, the Baron, hires a fighter played by Yul Brynner to protect Ooh. his enclave. It sounds cheesy and it's kind of cheesy for a little bit, but then it takes a dark turn and proceeds to just get darker and bleaker with every scene. Seedow is the actual protagonist of the film rather than Yul Brynner, as the world the title would suggest, and the movie handles it, uh, his role as the moral rudder of a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic society with surprising depth. He's played as a very tragic figure, and I found the movie to be ultimately very haunting and poignant when the uh, when the title and setup seem anything but the, cool. ultimate, the ultimate warrior. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I haven't seen the ultimate out. warrior. Okay. Um, and there was another one he said. Uh, P.S. Please cover the post-apocalyptic sitcom Whoops on Cancel Too Soon, or the post-apocalyptic spin-off pilot Knight Rider 2010 on Cancel Too Soon. We, They're probably already both on the list, but I wanted to add another vote for both. Uh, I actually, Ryan. I'm not sure Whoops is on the list. I know we've had it recommended before. I'll have to make sure it is. Uh, we, there have been so many failed Knight Riders, we've talked about doing a Knight Rider month. <laughs> yeah, there have been a couple, a couple of nights. Team Knight Rider. Yeah, there was Knight um, Rider 2010, and there was, then there was that Val Kilmer Knight Rider, which I think Val only Kil- lasted one season. Yeah, and, and I think it was also like a animated Knight Rider oh, somewhere shit, in there. I don't know. We need to look into that because that'd be a fun yeah. one. I actually oh, didn't watch all that much Knight Rider but my wife did and Michelle okay. loved that show as a kid. <laughs> oh, and there's one last thing. It okay. says, for posterity's sake, this is the Hotmail address I made when I was 11. Solidarity <laughs> to, solidarity to Whitney. And all of use with the Blockbuster video card of email addresses. <laughs> Well, well, thank, thank, you, very thank much. you, Ryan. Yeah. Thank you much. And listen, a uh, uh, lot of different varying opinions on the hunt. Uh, that is not the first time I've heard uh, that basic mm. take. Of, not that the take is basic, but like that general uh, take on the film. Not what I got out of it, but fair enough. I look forward to more people actually being able to see it. Mm. And then maybe we can get a little bit more of a yeah, consensus. I'm, I'm, I really want you to see it. I well, really be, just can't wait for you to do that. Because we're in the position we are actually to have you know immediate access to, to films like The Hunt and to mm-hmm. Bloodshot. I'm going to try to see Trolls World Tour because it's a new film. Sure. And that's, that's our our job to review those Yeah, we got to do that, yeah. Uh, I am uh, going to encourage uh, every single one of you to rent Emma. Because I okay. freaking love Emma, and also The Invisible Man, because I freaking love The Invisible Man. Invisible Man is yeah. great. Birds of Prey is coming out, too. They, uh, Kathy Ann like, went on Twitter and said, yeah, I wouldn't mind if Birds of Prey came out like sooner. And Warner Bros. was like, yeah, okay. So Birds <laughs> of Prey is going to be out like yeah. way sooner than usual. I highly recommend you check that out. And, uh, if you I- missed it in theaters and you're like, ah, I don't want to, you're going to see 
such a fun, like Paul Perverhoven-y, Walter Hillish, mm. crazy action movie. I love it to pieces. I'm, I'm actually going to watch it again. I hope so. I, I didn't like it. I, I know. I didn't find any of that craziness in that movie. I thought it was really kind of sedate. Mm. It's like no energy in that movie. And I'm trying... It's, but it's not, it's not like... But I'm not saying I've, it's hyperactive. I'm saying I've, it's got... I've encountered nobody who shares this view, so I really think I need to give it another chance. Every once in a while, it's important to reevaluate. Because, yeah, yeah, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong about that? I, I mean, need to rewatch so that. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll watch yeah. it with some people. Maybe yeah. I'll, I'll get more into the spirit of Birds of Prey. But right. the time I saw it, I just, just didn't do, did nothing for me. Fair enough. Uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. If you want to write into a future episode of We've Got Mail, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, please don't forget, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. Um, you know, at this time, given the way the industry is, uh, the Patreon is especially important. Uh, to mm-hmm. keeping this network going. It was always vital to keep the network going, but now if without it, we couldn't. <laughs> There'd be, we right. just couldn't do this. Um, so everyone who subscribes, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Everyone who might be able to subscribe, we ask you to consider it. And if you can't, we totally get it. Times are hard for everyone right now. We're all doing our best. We hope you are staying safe and healthy and that you're taking care of you and yours. Um, please... Stay self isolated as much as you can. Uh, follow the follow follow reliable news and sources of information. Follow the CDC website, um, and uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter. You can talk to us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Together, we're at Critic Acclaim, and uh, yeah, we'll be back with tons more content, Patreon exclusive content, more content for free right here at Critically Acclaimed Network. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney.